0: Hey, we just uh, got back from our elders uh, retreat. We do an annual elders retreat, and uh, we had a chance yet, uh, the last several days to be gone. We had a, added a couple new elders this year that we're uh, sometime in the next few weeks we 'll introduce some of our new guys to you. a couple staff members on this trip, including Kim Hammond, who 's a consultant from Chicago. Uh, but a couple of guys rotating off that we don 't normally get a chance to honor the guys who rotate off, but, and i, I don 't know if they 're in the service or not, but Bill Yates, uh, many of you know Bill, has been at Westridge for many years and uh, served the last year as kind of our elder of elders. He gets to wear this big hat with the horns coming out like the Grand Poobah from the Flintstones or the, the Buffalo Lodge hat, yeah. But uh, is Bill in the service? All right. Where is he? Bill, stand up, Bill. Let's give Bill a big hand for serving. Bill Yates. All right. And also my brother Kevin's rotating off. He's actually served 15 years, served seven, Took a, rotated off for a year. The elders brought him back on uh, and served another, another seven years. And also, I know he's not in the service. The first service just loved on him, and I so appreciated that. But also, been serving for 13 years in our children's ministry area, and um, and he's taking a break from that right now. I mean, if you know, if you've been in that area, know anything about it? My brother's the guy that takes pies in the face almost every Sunday, food over his head, and it, it's making his hair fall out. And we so we needed him. No, I'm just kidding, but we. Uh, I so appreciate the first service, just loving on him the way they, they did, and and um, that that's I don't know of anyone in our church that served longer in children's ministry than, than that, and he's been so involved in so many areas, journey groups, and even organizing our softball, if you want to call that a ministry, it it is a ministry. But he's so so connected, so he's taking a little break from some of that stuff. So love on him if you would, but thank you to Bill, love you pal. Thank you to my brother Kevin. And we'll introduce the new guys to you here shortly. Hey, we're we're in a in a brand new series. Uh, we started last Sunday in the Book of Colossians, and if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there. And uh, last week, we made the case that that Jesus Christ does not want to be first in your life. What he wants is to be the center of your life. And I said that Jesus doesn't want um, he doesn't want prominence. What he wants is to be he wants preeminence. He wants to be all to you. And when he is the center of your world and everything revolves around him, which includes our relationships and our time and our finances and our priorities, everything should flow out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, over the past week, I've thought a lot about that message. I've thought a lot about the implications of, of what it would look like if all of us chose to really, truly Make Jesus Christ the center of our lives. I mean, what if all of us could truly say, Jesus is Lord. You are Lord of everything. I mean, if we truly believe that Jesus is supreme enough to rule over our entire lives and he is sufficient enough to handle all of our needs. In other words, he is truly enough. I want you to think for just a moment about what, what could happen. Think about the possibilities of what can happen in, just in your life. Think about, your, think about the marriages, not just in our church, but around our community, how they would change If Jesus Christ were truly brought into that relationship and and given his proper place, the center of that marriage, think of how much reconciliation would take place between friends and and, and family members and different people groups, neighbors. If Jesus Christ were given his rightful place, right at the center of those friendships, of of those people groups, we talk about racial reconciliation. That's not going to happen until Jesus Christ is put at the center of that situation. Think of how much better we would handle our finances and how much peace we would have about our finances if we gave Jesus Christ his rightful place and put him at the center of of our financial world. Think about how our priorities would change if we we begin to live our lives for others instead of ourselves. If if Jesus were truly at the center of of our priorities, it would change everything. We would take on the attitude of Christ who came not, not to be served but to serve. See, when it comes to our life, all all the wisdom, all the strength, all of the answers that we need, all of the the help that we need, everything that you could have asked for is found in the person of Jesus Christ. There's never a need to look outside, anywhere else. Because Christ, and this is the message of Colossians, Christ is enough. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, the Apostle Paul makes this amazing statement. He says, for this is the secret. This is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this is your assurance that you will share in his glory. Now, I want you to, the word secret here does not mean that God is being mysterious or he's being secretive. What it means is that God has a plan for the world and that we see this plan unfolding all the way from Genesis through the Gospels into Revelations and continuing through the ages until the end of time here on earth and into eternity. And here's the plan that's unfolding. Because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross by providing redemption and reconciliation with God the Father, Christ lives in you. Christ in you. That's what Paul says. That's the message that God wants all of us to hear this morning. Christ in you and you in Christ. In Christ, we have been made complete. It's what we just what we just sang those words. And because Christ lives inside of us, we have this incredible assurance that one day we'll share in His glory. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you live next door to this beautiful piece of real estate. You don't own it; it's it, it's, it's, for, it's 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 there, but but you don't own it. All right. But one day, one one day, all right, all of a sudden. It, it's put on the market. It, 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 now, it's all of a sudden, you look over there, and there's a for sale sign there. But I want you also to imagine that you have a neighbor that lives down the street, and he is your enemy. I mean, you don't even know why. It's, like, it's not like you, you did anything to this person or whatever, but this guy just hates your guts. He can't stand you. matter of fact, he hates you so much that he's doing everything he can to try to make your life miserable. Some of you are going, that, that's, you're telling my story. All right. Now, again, the land for sale, it, it, the land next to you is on the market, it's for sale. It, it, and not only is it for sale and beautiful, but, man, it's got a ton of oil underneath. You don't even know that. But underneath that, that beautiful piece of real estate, there is just a vast amount of just riches through, through this, this oil supply. Now, your neighbor who hates you, he knows that under that piece of property, there's oil. But you don't. He also knows that he could never buy it. Not in a million years. He could never buy that piece of property. And so he tries everything possible to keep you from buying it. However, one day when he's away, you decide to buy it. It's yours. And he finds out. And he is furious He's furious. He can't get it, but, he, but he, he's... So here's what he does. He sets out to make sure that you never find out the riches that are underneath that piece of property. He, he doesn't want you to know that, that, that there's oil under that land. And so he does everything he can to keep you from knowing that it's under there. Here's what he does. He calls the city. And he tries to get them to put legal regulations and bureaucratic red tape on that property that will just bog you down from ever doing anything productive on that land. And if that doesn't work, he tries another strategy. He, he gets you to have potluck dinners on that land. He, he wants you to build tennis courts on that land. He gets you to build ball fields on that land. He gets you to have weekly socials on that land. He, get, he gets you so busy on the surface that you never, ever, ever discover what's beneath. And if he succeeds your enemy will, done, will have done almost as much harm as if he had actually prevented you from buying the land in the first place. Now, I hope that you connect the dots because this is exactly what Satan is trying to do with us. Once we become children of God, able to plug into the truth that Christ is in us and that we everything that we need is in Christ because Christ is enough, then Satan has lost a very, very important battle. And now his only weapon against us is to try to fill our heads with false ideas so that we never discover the incredible wealth that we have inherited as as children of, of the living God. His plan is that we never discover the secret to the abundant life that is found only in allowing Jesus Christ to not only be the center of our world, but also the center of our identity. Christ in me and me in Christ. Now, if you've been around Westridge for a while, you know that I'm very passionate about this topic, And the reason why I'm so passionate about it, like, like many of you, I grew up in a very religious world that caused me to feel a great deal of shame. Now, I want to define shame, and I hope you'll understand what I mean by the, using the word shame. Dr. Brene, Brene Brown, who is an expert on shame, imagine being an expert on shame, but this one has studied shame for years, and he, this is the definition she gives of shame. She defines shame as an intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. Now, I want to explain this to you from my standpoint. For, from, from most of my childhood, I grew up in a great home. Early on, my parents fought a lot, but then my dad trusted, and then trusted Christ, and God put their marriage back together. And I, I had, I, I will tell you this, I had great parents. My mom's still alive. She's an amazing mother. And from my earliest memories, they instilled in me the belief that that God loved me and that I could do anything, anything that I put my mind to, I could pull it off. However, there was a lot of other voices in my world, all right, mostly in the religious world that that we were brought up in, that said that while God loved me and, and even though Jesus died for me, he was rarely ever happy with me. He was rarely ever pleased with me. Matter of fact, his happiness towards me was totally based on my ability to perform for him. It was based on my ability to live up to a list of rules, my ability to work for his approval. Now, I want to tell you about that kind of shame. That kind of shame is lethal. And I believe it's the reason why I struggled spiritually when I went off to college at the age of 18. I think it's the reason why I had some relationship issues before I met my wife Amy. I think it's the reason why I struggled for many years with, uh, early, especially early on in ministry, with being a workaholic. I mean, I could go on and on, and on and on about the impact that that kind of shame has had on my life. But thankfully today, even though I'm still discovering and I'm still, God is still unveiling little pockets of unhealthiness in my life, God is, on the, is in the ongoing process of healing me and conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. But for years... For years, even into, uh, into a few years of, of me being in seminary, I truly didn't understand what it meant to be in Christ. I, I, I had heard the term, but it didn't translate into my daily life. The idea that Jesus was enough was, was, was totally foreign to me. The, the idea that I was totally complete and acceptable and pleasing to God because of Christ in me was a foreign concept. The truth that Jesus wanted... To be and could be the center of my identity wasn't even on my my radar. Here's what I found to be true, though. When you have a wrong view of God and you have a wrong view of Jesus, you end up with a wrong view of yourself. And here's what happens. You end up with an identity crisis. But but fortunately, somewhere along the way, in in my early 90s, God began to... Unveil to me my true identity as his child and what it really meant to be in Christ. And here's my hope and prayer for you this morning. That God, if if you're not at that place yet, that God will begin to do the same thing for you. That he will unveil this amazing life-changing truth of what it truly means to be a child of God, to be in Christ and what that means for you today so that you can live it out tomorrow morning. Now, the Apostle Paul, who is the author of the book of Colossians, he is writing to a really small group of people, kind of a house church in, in, uh, in this little town called Colossae, which is in today modern Turkey. And he's trying to speak against some of the false teaching and religious lies that were coming against this church. And so in verse 21, he, he, he starts laying down some amazing foundational teaching to help them understand their true identity in Christ. And he reminds them of who they were before before their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Once, verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, if you're new to church or you're new to the idea of Christianity, you haven't been in church in years and years, or that verse, I mean, you're looking at going, what in the world does that mean? I mean, that verse can really be kind of a tough one to grasp. So let me see if I can help you understand it a little bit because I think Paul, he he starts off by answering a very important question. And here's the question. Who were we, who were you before Christ? Here's what he says. He says, we were, you were cut off from God. He says, and you who were once were alienated. Because of the sin of Adam, all of us in this room are spiritually at one of two places. You are either completely cut off from God and spiritually dead, or you have been made alive in Christ. You have been reconciled back to him by your acceptance and your belief that the blood of Jesus Christ was enough to pay for the penalty of your sins. And you have been freed up from being physically and spiritually dead. You've been made alive in Christ. Now, Paul says, no two ways about it. Before Christ, there was a gap. I want you to think about it. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, I want you just to think of the Grand Canyon and just blow that right out of your mind. Because the gap between you and God was, 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 was humongous. And there was absolutely no way in sight of bridging that divide. You and God completely separate, with nothing to bridge it. He also says, Paul says, we were enemies of God. Verse 21, it says, you were hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now, listen, those are tough words to hear. I mean, it's hard to imagine your friend, okay? You have a friend who, who maybe at work, who's really close to you, they may maybe in the next office or cubicle or whatever, and they don't know Christ as their Savior. And the Bible says that they are not only cut off from God, but they're an enemy of God. And you're going, really? I like them. They seem like a pretty nice person. Or your next-door neighbor that lives in your cul-de-sac that you do life with. Or maybe, for you students, a teammate of yours on your football team or cheerleading or whatever it might be. I mean, and and I I think that that one of the reasons why we struggle sometimes with, with telling people about Christ is because we don't understand or we don't even want to accept that these folks are not only cut off from God, but God sees them as enemies. But spiritually speaking, Paul says... That any person without Christ in their life, inwardly, is inwardly hostile in their mind. It means, I mean, they don't mean to be that way. But spiritually s- speaking, in, in, in the state that they're in, okay, they're not only cut off from God, but outwardly they sin against God. And so God views that person as an enemy. In other words, they're not on his team. They're actually suited up playing for the opposition. And Paul says, folks, that's who we used to be. Before Christ, cut off from God, eternally separated, spiritually dead, hopefully, ho- hopelessly lost, trapped in our sin, enemies with God, until God made a move. God made a move. It's almost like a chess game. God created mankind. Satan countered by introducing sin into the world. Mankind took the bait like pawns in his hands. Sin, sin entered the world. But God trumped him by sending his son Jesus to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And when he did that, he removed the sin barrier between us and God once and for all. It built a bridge over that Grand Canyon sized gap that existed between us. He moved his peace on the board. He made his move towards us. But listen, that's only half the story. Salvation becomes complete when we receive it as a free gift by faith. It's total grace on his part, something we didn't deserve. What does it take to get it? Our faith in the fact that Jesus Christ is enough. He's the son of God. He's the one that did it. And so what do we have to do? We have to make our move. The reason why God removed the sin barrier was so that whosoever wanted to cross that bridge by faith could come to God and things could be made right once and for all. So Paul says you used to be cut off, you used to be enemies with God, and then he really points out something really cool about how our identity has has completely changed. Look at at the second point here. He answers another. How how has it changed since Christ has become our Savior? Well, in verse 22 he says, He has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And here, I'm going to break that down for you, and please listen to me. Don't zone out right now, okay? The Falcons lost yesterday. The Braves continue to win. So, did they win yesterday? I am really sorry, all right? (laughs) But I'm telling you right now, I'm I'm all in. I want you to know that, okay? (laughs) Here's what Paul says. God says, we have been brought over now because of Jesus to God's side. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Again, the word reconciled means that God has done his part. He has removed the barrier that exists between him and us. He has built a bridge between man and God. He's created a way for there to be peace between us and him once and for all. And the moment that we make our move on the board and trust Jesus Christ to be our Savior, we are brought over to God's side. We switch teams. The separation is completely gone. The gap is closed once and for all. We go from being unacceptable to being completely acceptable. Now think of the lengths for a moment. That some people go to, to feel, just to feel like they fit in. I mean, we grew up with this great desire to be accepted. We grew up with this desire to feel like we belong. And when we don't find what we need, we go, we, we will go to all kinds of places. We will go as far as we can go and do some really crazy things to find acceptance. I mean, you think about social networking today. I mean, you got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you got the Vine, you got LinkedIn, you've got... Things that people invite me into things now I've never even heard of, and I've had I'm at my social networking quota limit right now. I can't do any more. Seriously, all right. I don't care what someone else comes out with, all right. But, but it amazes me what people will do on social networking just to say, look at me, accept me, love me, validate me. It's almost like our trips and our vacations aren't validated. They didn't happen unless we put them out there for everyone to see. But I, I, and I want to, it makes me sad sometimes that when I see, um, especially a lot of times, young ladies, you, you, you watch and, and, and you see Facebook and you see all these little things called selfies. You know, they, like. <laughs> and it, listen, I put pictures out there, my family, things we've done, you know. But you know, you can see when somebody puts something out there that just says, please love me, please accept me, please Please look at who I am. Look at, look at how I look. Look at, look at this, look at that. I'm, I'm begging, pleading somebody, push the like button. So I feel accepted. Listen, because Christ lives in you, you are totally accepted by God. Because Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, you belong. Some of you may be going, so-and-so, so-and-so. They don't accept me. Who cares? Listen, God created you. He designed you. Jesus died for you. The Holy Spirit gifted you and empowered you. So if someone doesn't accept you because of the way you look or because of the way you were designed or because of your personality, they can take it up with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because they're the ones that are responsible. I mean, we go through such great lengths for someone to accept us, even people out in the world. If you're a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, listen, I've got news for you. The world is not going to accept you because Paul says they're spiritually hostile towards you. And i got news for you, it's only going to get worse. So stop trying to earn their acceptance. And rest in the fact that you've been totally accepted and you are pleasable by the one who created you. And Paul says this He says, We've been changed from the inside out. Look at verse 22. In order, why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Now, many of you, you have seen, uh, you, you've seen a courtroom scene on TV or you've been in a courtroom, real life situation where people, maybe it was you, you were brought before a, a judge. And the judge is making a decision, okay? There's no, there's no jury. The judge is making a decision on whether you're, that person is guilty or innocent. And Paul says that now, because of Jesus, you are now judicially innocent. As you stand before the God of the universe, because of Jesus, the judge of mankind sees you as a changed person from the inside out. When it comes to your eternal status because of Jesus, you're faultless. Ephesians 1.4 says, you are blameless in his sight. Paul says, you are without blemish where you used to be unholy where you used to be sinful because of jesus you are now holy in god's sight do we still sin yeah but that doesn't see, that's not how god sees you where your life used to be spotted and tainted with sin because of jesus you now stand without blemish you say what happened you experienced the great exchange You used to be in the world. You used to be trapped in sin. You used to be trapped in the flesh. You used to be stuck in spiritual death. But God exchanged all of that with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because now Christ lives in you, you have exchanged death for life. Guilty for innocence. Faulty for faultless. Stained, blemished for stainless and unblemished. That's who you are now. And Paul says we've been released from every charge against us. Look at verse 22. It says an above reproach before him. Paul says in, in Revelation's chapter 12 verse 10 that our enemy Satan is the accuser of Christians. Again, it's like a scene in a courtroom where God's the judge. And while while Jesus while you're standing before God being presented holy and blameless by Jesus, Satan is still yelling guilty. He's still bringing up the sin of your past. He's still bringing up the things that you're doing in the present. He's trying to still accuse you of the problems that you're having right now. And you know what? You're hearing it all in your head. And he keeps hammering you with words like shame and guilt and unacceptable, undesirable, unpleasing, ugly. The Bible says in 1 John 2, verse 1, that Jesus is our advocate. In other words, he's got our back. He's like a defense lawyer. And he's pleading our case before God, the judge. And based on his merits alone, not yours, the judge sees you as innocent, free from every accusation, released from every charge. Boom, not guilty. Without Christ, you stand before the judge, accused and condemned with Christ in you, and you in Christ, you are, rec- you are acquitted and released from every charge that is thrown against you. And then Paul says, we've been firmly established into God's family. Verse twenty three says, "If if indeed we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I of which uh, and I and of uh, uh, which I Paul became a minister." And here's what Paul's saying. Paul says, he says, this is like an image, all right. And he and Paul loved to use imagery, very much like Jesus in his teaching. He uses the words "not shifting." Literally, it could mean earthquake-stricken. And what Paul is saying is this. If you're truly saved, then you're built on a solid foundation. All right? You're building on a solid foundation, and nothing, including an earthquake-sized situation, will ever be able to move you. You are secure. You are stable. And even though you're going to go through tough times, and things are going to come into your life they are going to rock your world, because Jesus is your foundation, you're anchored in. You're anchored in. Nothing can shake you. And so Paul says because of Christ and since we receive Christ's gift of salvation, our whole identity has been changed. Verse 27 says that Christ now lives inside of us. Christ stepped out of heaven and into you by by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit and made you a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we've become new creations. Our whole identity has changed. Several verses in the Bible talk about how we've now been adopted and now we are established into God's family. And what makes me so sad is that there are so many people who, who call themselves Christians who walk around like orphans, not knowing who they are or who they belong to, desperately, desperately looking for acceptance and a sense of belonging. But listen, when you receive salvation, you are firmly established into God's family. You become adopted. You become a son or a daughter of the king, of the God, of the universe. Now, let me say this. Since you're part of God's family, here's what he wants you to do. He he wants you to have a place where you can hang out with other people in the family, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why he created the church. This is all his idea. Why? Because he wants you to have a place where you can feel loved, where you can feel accepted, a place where you feel like you belong. And it's not a bar called Cheers. It's a place called Westridge Church. <laughs> now, I know some of you go, yeah, but I want to go to a place where somebody knows my name. <laughs> All right? <laughs> All right? Someplace. That's why we do small groups here in this church. That's why it's important that you get connected further with people. You've got to make a step here. you got to get people. We were created for relationships. How do, you, how do I belong? How do I feel love accepted in this church? Well, you, I hope you feel it in here. But I want to encourage you this morning to take that next step and get involved in a journey group. Now, I know that many of you, you know, you look at this passage of Scripture, you hear what I'm talking about, and, and you've, you've read this before. You hope, maybe, hopefully you've heard it before. You're very aware of who you are in Christ, and you're very aware of what Christ has done for you. But you're still struggling with an identity crisis. While God has made you spiritually wealthy, for whatever reason, you're still living like a pauper. You're like this landowner that we talked about earlier, just living on a tremendous amount of wealth, but yet you haven't discovered it yet. Maybe you're still living, trapped in, in, with, the, with the past guilt of your sins. Satan is constantly just, he's, he's, he's hammering you. You're feeling defeated. You're feeling that, that you're just, you're, you're, you're undesirable and unworthy to be used. And yet the Bible God himself calls you victorious. He says you're an overcomer. He uses the word conqueror. And while many of us, we have the head knowledge of of who you are, and you have head knowledge of, 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 of who you belong to, what you may be missing is the knowledge of how to live that out. So if I'm truly in Christ, what does that look like? How do I begin to live that out? How can I live out the fact that Christ lives in me? What does it look like to put Christ at the very center of my identity so that it overflows into my everyday? Well, Paul answers that question. And his answers may surprise you a bit. They're not the the, the feel-good answers that you you might be hoping to hear after a message like this, okay? So how should we live this out? How should we live out our new identity in Christ? Paul says, the Bible says, we must be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. (laughs) Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up What is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. Now, Paul, when Paul was writing this letter, he was in prison. And the false teachers in Colossae were making a big deal of the fact that Paul, the mighty apostle, Paul, is stuck in a jail cell. And they used that as a weapon to to ridicule Christianity, to to, kind of just ridicule the truth of the Bible. In their eyes, Paul was a loser. But Paul used that weapon for his own benefit. And he said, listen, church, he said, here's the deal. The fact that you are in Christ also means that at times you're going to have to suffer on behalf of Jesus Christ. You've been brought over to God's side. You've been changed from the inside out. You've been freed up from every accusation. You have been firmly established into God's family. And Paul says, I'll take joy in suffering for you as long as it keeps people from robbing you of that knowledge. I will fight to the death for that, for that truth. Now listen to me. Identifying with Christ does not mean that all of a sudden everything becomes wonderful. Matter of fact, quite the contrary. You're going to suffer. You are going to suffer. It is God's will that believers suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now I know some of we don't live in China. We don't live in some of, you know some other country where, where, where Christianity is, is illegal. But part of His will is that we're going to suffer. Living out your identity in Christ and allowing Jesus to be the center of your identity means at times that you're going to have to pay a price for that. The heat's going to be turned up a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Being identified with Christ means that you're going to have to take some heat. It means that you're going to have to endure some criticism. People are going to challenge who you are in Christ. It means that you may at times have to take an unpopular stand. But every time that you experience a victory after suffering, you realize that you have been changed inside. You look, I said, how, you, I could have never go through that without Jesus Christ because I realize, you look back and you go, how did I get through that? Because something powerful lives inside of you. And then Paul says, we also must be willing to serve others. He says, God has given me, verse 25, the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. Paul was undoubtedly the most significant leader of the first century church. I mean, someone with his clout today in the religious world, they might have their own plane, helicopter, huge home, chauffeur, most expensive, I mean, car, the whole deal. That's not how Paul led people. Paul led people by serving them. He endured hardship for them. He sacrificed for them. He he identified himself with Jesus. Jesus said, here's how I came to serve. He said, when I came here, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And Paul had the very same attitude. He realized living out the identity in Christ, his identity in Christ caused him, compelled him to want to serve other people. See, when you're having an identity crisis, you have a wrong view of God, you have a wrong view of Jesus, a wrong view of the Holy Spirit... The very last thing you, you want to do is serve someone else. I mean, it's hard to pour your life into others when you're, your mind is consumed with lies from Satan about your past or your present or your future. When you're trapped in discouragement or even at times trapped in depression, many times it's because you're believing things about yourself that aren't true. And then the focus becomes what? All about you, 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 you. You become self-absorbed. And instead of letting Christ overflow out of your lives to where you're serving others and they're they're seeing Jesus in you. All that that comes out of you is anger or pride or guilt or shame or self-pity or even arrogance and pride. But see, when we're living out our true identity in Christ and he's the center, Jesus is Lord, what what becomes important to us is what is important to him. And we realize that our lives can actually overflow into other people with confidence And that everything that we need to serve others is found in Christ. He's enough to cover all of our insufficiencies and our insecurities. And then finally, he says, we must be willing to help others to grow in their faith. How do I live this out? Help others to grow, to learn the same truth. He says, for this I toil, I work, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul was extremely committed to helping these Colossian believers to fight against the false teaching that was out there, to not believe it. I mean, he wanted them, he wanted to see them grow and become mature believers. But he admitted, he says it, he says, I struggled and I agonized over the fact that these believers were being bombarded with lies and false teaching. And that's why he felt the need at the very beginning of the book of Colossians in chapter one to remind them of who they used to be and to challenge them to embrace the truth of who they now were in Christ." See, that's why we need to put Christ and the truth of His his Word at the very center of our identity. And then we need to help others grow into the same faith. Listen, parents, your, your greatest mission field, parents, are your children. They need to hear truth, they need to hear this truth because they're looking for acceptance. And I want to tell you, sometimes you pour in, and this is important. You pouring love into them, you pouring acceptance into them, you pouring, validating them. And sometimes it's not enough. Matter of fact, I'd say it's not enough. The world's too strong. They need to be anchored in something that's more, more secure and stable than you are. Again, I mean, we got to anchor them in this truth God's Word that doesn't change, that doesn't shift when the world around us is shaking. So as we close, let me challenge you. I want to challenge you to make a decision. Here it is. Jesus, you are Lord. Here's what you say about me and the word, and I put you at the very center of not only my world, but my identity. And regardless of what the world says or what a friend might say about me, or someone who is not a friend may say about me, or what someone puts on social media, or, or what my past may be saying to me, or even what my mind might be doing right now, I'm going to believe what you say. And then I'm going to let that truth overflow into the lives of other people. But Paul says, listen, he says it straight up so you understand this. It's a struggle. And some of you, you, you now that you know this, you may have the worst week of your life coming up. I, I it might, but, but here's the deal. I love what Paul says in verse 29. He says, I struggle. I labor in what? His energy. His energy. Which so powerfully works in me. What does that mean? It means through Christ's strength in you, you can do this. We have an energy working that is more powerful than anything we can imagine that works within us. I love Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ in some who strengthens me. In other words, Christ is enough. He's enough to be the center of my world and he's enough to be the center of my identity. Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you. As the believers in Colossae struggled with this, Lord, we struggle with the very same thing. That's why this is in here for us. That's why you include it in your, in your word. It's a message for today. Let us anchor ourselves in truth, in the truth of what you say about us because we are in Christ. And there, I know, Lord, there are some who are in here who probably have never closed the gap. They've never come to a place in their lives where they have said, okay, Jesus Christ, you're the one that did this. The cross bridged the great divide. And I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, need to, I want the gap closed. I don't want to be an enemy any longer. And so by faith right now, would you pray with me if that's what you need to do this morning? God's provided the way through Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it. No good works, no family background, nothing. It's all by faith that you come to Christ, to Christ at this very moment. Say, what do I do? Just pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, at this very moment, I confess with these lips that you're the Son of God. I believe in my heart that what you did on the cross for me was enough. Nothing I can do. And I put every bit of faith and every bit of trust in you alone. And I come to you by faith. And I accept the free gift of salvation into my life. I don't want want there to be a gap between me and God any longer. The cross closed the gap. I believe that. Lord, I don't want to be an enemy in your eyes any longer. Take that away. I want to be in your family, adopted, firmly established, rooted in, growing. Jesus did all that for me. And I accept that truth. And I repent of my sin. Lord, I'm so sorry. Forgive me of my sin. Thank you that the blood of Jesus was enough to cover all of it and to take away every blemish. And I receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer, here's what I want you to do: take out your worship guide. There's a communication card in there. Check the box. Give us your information. Check the box that says, "This morning I prayed to re- receive Jesus Christ as my Savior." Take it out to the atrium to the help center. Give that to them, please. We've got some. We want to give you. And then let us help you to take your next step. For the rest of us, let's live out our true identity this week. Let's put it into action tomorrow morning. All right. Are you going to suffer? You might. You might have a great week. Who knows? You might wake up tomorrow and the world's falling apart. I, I, I have no idea what's going to happen. But because of who we are in Christ, we are we're anchored in a stable, firm foundation that not even an earthquake-sized situation can rock. All right? And let's let that overflow, the truth of who we are, let's let it overflow into the lives of those around us. I love the fact that these couples that we had up here a moment ago that were on stage, listen, they're just living out the mission of Jesus Christ in the context of where they are. We look at people and we go, oh my gosh, Spain, Thailand, China, uh, Brazil. Listen, you need to be doing that in your cul-de-sac. You need to be doing that on the ball field, living out the mission of Jesus where God has placed you. How do we do that? Put Christ at the center of your world, let it overflow into others. Put Christ at the center of your identity so you know who you are and walk with a humble sense of confidence through this world and let that trickle down, overflow like a a ripple, water rippling out of a pool onto people so that they see Jesus in your life.